Time magazine called him the unsung hero behind the internet. CNN called him a father of the internet. President Bill Clinton called him one of the great minds of the information age. He has been voted history's greatest scientist of African descent. He is Philip Emigwali. He's coming to Trinidad and Tobago to launch the 2008 Kwame Ture Lecture Series on Sunday, June 8th at the JFK Auditorium, Uwe St. Augustine, 5 p.m. The Emancipation Support Committee invites you to come and hear this inspirational mind adjust the theme, crossing new frontiers to conquer today's challenges. This lecture is one you cannot afford to miss. Admission is free, so be there on Sunday, June 8th, 5 p.m. at the JFK Auditorium, Uwe St. Augustine. In 1967, my hometown, Onicha, was the bloodiest battlefield in Africa. About 15,000 soldiers were killed in the Battle of October 12, 1967, the first of four invasions of Onicha. On March 20, 1968, the Biafran army used us, the 15,000 refugees in Onicha, as their human shields. Today, the Nigeria-Biafra War is ranked as the second bloodiest war in the history of Africa. During the 30-month-long Nigerian-Biafra War that began on July 4, on July 6, 1967, and ended on January 15, 19. 70, Colonel Hannibal Achuze was a war hero. He was praised for courageously fighting like a lion. Colonel Hannibal Achuze was nicknamed Air Raid by Biafran soldiers. Air Raid was their code phrase for, for Colonel Achuze's Land Rover, which had the registration number BA7 where BA was the acronym for the Biafran Army. Colonel Achuze's modus operandi at the battlefield was to hide in this Land Rover and hide at a safe distance behind the war front. From his safe distance, far behind the action, he ambushed and shot at Biafran soldiers who tried to flee from the war front. Hannibal Achuzie never killed a Nigerian soldier. Achuzie killed any Biafran soldier. He caught fleeing the battlefield. Achuzie disliked, panicked, disorderly, and undisciplined retreats from the battlefield. Achuzie ridiculed Biafran soldiers who were fleeing from battlefields as a quote-unquote coward. Throughout that 30-month-long war, Biafran soldiers were outgunned and outmanned by four to one. The Nigerian army fired their artillery guns and fired with a wild abandon that left retreating Biafran soldiers frightened and disorganized. On the battlefield, the ratio of Nigerians to Biafrans was four to one, and four Nigerian soldiers, each heavily armed with a modern automatic weapon, was fighting against only one Biafran soldier. 
who had about four bullets. Some different soldiers were fighting with a primitive rifle called Mark IV bolt action rifle. The Mark IV rifle was manufactured before the Second World War. That final Nigerian invasion of furniture of March 20, 1968 was supported by a column of British armored cars and supported by prayer air raids of furniture by Russian MiG-17 jet fighters and Russian Ilushin IL-28 bombers. When the war front action got hot, as it did on the night of March 20, 1968, Biafran soldiers were gripped by mass hysteria. Biafran abandoned the bulk of their military equipment in Onitsha. All schools in war-torn Biafra were closed for three years and converted as military barracks and as refugee camps. One in 15 Igbo-speaking persons died in that 30-month long war. In 1968, my ancestral hometown of Onitsha, Nigeria, was described as the bloodiest battlefield in the history of Africa. At about 6 o'clock in the evening of March 20, 1968, we, for the fourth time, fled as refugees from Onitsha. That afternoon, the town of Abagana, which was 50 miles away, was captured by the Nigerian army. The Nigerians outgunned, outnumbered, and outgunned the Biafrans by four to one. We fled because we saw the disorganized Biafran soldiers fleeing from the Abadana war front. Fleeing Biafran soldiers alerted us that alerted us that the Nigerian army will capture Onitsha in about six hours. Knowing that Nigerian soldiers did not take prisoners. We fled from 14 Mba Road, Onitsha, to the Merchants of Light School, Oba. Two months earlier, on January 19, 1967, my family fled as refugees from the battlefield at Oka Biafra. We fled back as refugees to 14 Mba Road, Onitsha, even though we fled from Onitsha as refugees to Ogidi and to Oka, and did so three months earlier, on October 12, 1967. From October 4 through 12, 1967, artillery rockets rained from the banks of the river Niger at Asaba to our neighborhood in Onitsha. Within hours, downtown Onitsha, called Odako and Fege quarters, became a ghost town. My family fled from my father's house at 4B Ebunadazia Street, Onitsha, to my maternal grandfather's house at 6C Wilkinson Road, Onitsha, and to the compound that was seven miles away at Upalogidi, Biafra, where my maternal grandmother was born, and fled to Oka, Biafra. In February 1968, Russian MiG-17 jet fighters strapped our neighborhood at 14 Mba Road on nature. 
Biafran anti-aircraft weapons were fired from nearby civilian house and fired at the MiG-17 jet fighter. That Biafran anti-aircraft strike incensed the Nigerian Air Force. Nigeria reacted by sending its Russian Ilushin IL-28 Beagle medium bombers to drop bombs upon refugees that fled from Attila Richelin that originated from the West Bank of the River Niger at Asaba. My family fled from downtown Onitsha to uptown Onitsha called Inu Onitsha. On the early morning of March 21, 1968, I lost two cousins, 17-year-old Patrick Okwosa and 24-year-old John Okwosa. Both surrendered, surrendered to Nigerian soldiers at their house at Egerton Road, Onitsha, that was across the street from Zeke's Institute. On March 21, 1968, the population of Onitsha was about 15,000 refugees, or one in 12 of its original residents. Five months earlier, the population of Onitsha was 180,000. That day, 2,000 male refugees were executed by the Nigerian army. The male Igbo refugees were killed to avenge the loss of 15,000 Nigerian soldiers, whom Biafran soldiers killed back on October 12, 1967. Those Nigerian soldiers were trapped at the east bank of the River Niger of downtown Onitsha and could not flee across the destroyed River Niger bridge to the west bank of Atasaba. 15,000 Nigerian soldiers were killed by Biafran soldiers during the ensuing house-to-house -house fighting that lasted a few days following October 12, 12, 1967. In the following five months, my family fled by foot from Onitsha to Gidi, which was seven miles away. About three weeks later, we fled from Ogidi to Oka, where my father was reassigned as a nurse. We spent the Christmas of 1967 in Oka. On, on January 19, 1968, we fled from Oka and back to Onitsha. We fled a few hours before the Nigerian army advanced from Enugu to capture Oka. Again, my father was reassigned as a nurse to Oba Biafra. At about 6 o'clock in the evening of March 20, 1968, we fled from advancing Nigerian army. We fled as refugees from our nature and fled because we saw poorly armed Biafran soldiers that should be protecting us fleeing from the Abagana battlefield, which was 16 miles away. That night, Biafran soldiers were in total disarray and outgunned and lost their will to fight. 
the Nigerian army rapidly routed the Biafran army. Biafran soldiers fled from the Abagana battlefield through Ogidi, Npo, and Onicha. During that five-month period of four Nigerian military invasions, from October 12, 1967, through March 21, 1968, Onicha, a renowned city of commerce, was reduced to a ghost town of about 15,000 refugees, who were all indigents of Onicha. After three military invasions of downtown Onicha, that each originated from Asaba and across the river Niger, the refugees fled from downtown Onicha, consisting of Fege and Odao others, and fled to the greater safety of the inland town part of Onicha. When the Nigerian Civil War ended on January 15, 1970, one in 15 Gafrans had died, and my hometown of Onicha was declared as the bloodiest battlefield in African history. In June 1970, at age 15 and in Onicha, I had an epiphany. Because I was considered gifted in mathematics, the possibility of me getting a scholarship to the USA wasn't far-fetched. So I began nursing the idea of coming to the USA. Three years later, I won a scholarship to Oregon, USA. That was dated September 10, 1973. Nine months later, I was in Cobalis, Oregon, programming one of the world's fastest supercomputers. I used the technology to solve a system of equations of algebra. A Nigerian writing a school essay asked me, why are supercomputers used in Nigeria? The energy and geoscience industries bought one in 10 supercomputers and used them to pinpoint deposits of crude oil and natural gas. There are 65,000 oil and gas fields around the world my country of birth, Nigeria, has 159 oil and gas fields. The Bonga oil field of Nigeria was discovered in 1996. That oil field was at an average depth of 3,300 feet. The estimated oil in the Bonga oil field is about 1.5 billion barrels. The fastest computing executed across millions of processors must be harnessed and used to recover about half of the oil discovered in the Bonga oil field. In 1989, I was in the news for discovering how the slowest processors in the world could be harnessed as the world's fastest computer and across an internet that's a global network of those processors and used to discover and recover otherwise elusive crude oil and natural gas. I began supercomputing on Thursday, June 20, 1974, 
when President Richard Nixon was in the House White House. I began scalar supercomputing by writing my first supercomputer code in my one-room studio apartment that was upstairs of a White House at 195A North Street South, Monmouth, Oregon, USA. I began fastest computing when it was a crime to sell a supercomputer to the Soviet Union who might use that supercomputer to simulate nuclear explosions. Not only that, I began supercomputing 16 months after the first, the last man returned from the moon. I began supercomputing on a machinery that was ranked as the world's fastest computer eight years earlier on the same or in December 1965. Back then, I used supercomputers to solve mathematical equations. Since the 1930s, algebraic equations were the most recurring decimals in computational physics. So it should not come as a surprise that the computer center that I used in 1974 was between the physics building and mathematics building that was named Kida Hall. Kida Hall is a large neoclassical building that encompassed a full basement and three stories. In Oregon, Kida Hall is the center of mathematical research. I left Kida Hall on June 20, 1977. For me, the next 15 years of living and working in the District of Columbia, Maryland, Wyoming, Michigan, and Minnesota, we are full of obstacles, both scientific and racial. In my first two decades in the USA, I learned and discovered how to harness the slowest processors in the world and use them to power the fastest computers in the world. But there were times in the 1970s and 80s that I felt frustrated. I felt frustrated because I was a black supercomputer geek that was ostracized. Furthermore, I felt frustrated because I was forced to conduct my supercomputer research unfunded and alone. I felt frustrated by the challenges of being a supercomputer scientist who was the lone wolf at the farthest frontier of mathematics and physics. I felt frustrated because I was the lone programmer of my experimental ensemble of 65,536 processors. Not only that, I felt frustrated because my holy grail was to emulate a supercomputer and do so by supercomputing across the slowest 64 binary thousand processors in the world. In the 1970s and 80s, there were times I felt that the technology of computing across processors will never power the supercomputer of the future. Sometimes I felt that the fastest computing across up to a billion processors will forever remain impossible to harness. 
and used to forecast the weather. In the early 1980s, I felt like I wasn't discovering much about the fastest computing across the slowest processors. As a black African supercomputer scientist who worked as an outsider in white American supercomputer centers, my research in fastest computing was and had to be subterranean. In the early 1980s, I was called a lunatic, humiliated, and dismissed by my research teams who believe that the fastest computing across the slowest processors will forever remain a huge waste of everybody's time. In the 1980s, my mathematical theories about fastest computing and how to solve the hardest problems in parallel or solve 64 binary thousand mathematics problems at once were ridiculed and dismissed as unworkable and unrealistic. I discovered that to overcome racism in US supercomputer laboratories demands my anonymity without my being invincible. Until 1989, the supercomputer scientists that I corresponded with earlier in the 1980s, 70s, and 80s didn't know that I, Philip Emagwale, was a black and sub-Saharan African. Ironically, being a black supercomputer scientist put me at an advantage. It enabled me to discover that the world's slowest processors could be harnessed and used to power the world's fastest computers. If I was a white supercomputer scientist, I would have been given more significant opportunities and privileges I would have been accepted and absorbed into a large multidisciplinary research team of supercomputer scientists such as Cray, Intel, or IBM. I would have accomplished more with less supercomputing knowledge. Being black and African forced me to conduct my multidisciplinary supercomputer research alone. And to be a mathematician who is a polymath and shared his multidisciplinary knowledge across 1,000 podcasts and YouTube videos. That mastery enabled me to harness the total and maximum supercomputer power of my coupled ensemble of the two raised to power 16 slowest processors in the world that were designed for a mainstream market rather than for supercomputing and manufactured in colossal numbers and for a lower price. As a polymath, I understood extreme scale mathematical and computational physics differently and I understood it in a broader sense than a mathematician or a physicist could understand it. That's the reason I could post 1,000 closed captioned videos on YouTube that each explained my contributions to mathematics, physics, and computer science. Seymour Cray, 
who designed seven intense supercomputers of the 1970s, 80s, posted about 10 original videos on YouTube. Albert Einstein, the father of modern physics, has fewer than 10 original videos on YouTube. Students writing a short essay on famous scientists are often asked, what are the contributions of Philip Emmanuel to physics? As a physicist who came of age in the 1970s, I contributed to geophysical fluid dynamics and in particular to hydrodynamics. Hydrodynamics is the branch of physics that affects your everyday life the most. Hydrodynamics is the subject that Leonardo da Vinci investigated the most. I understood computational hydrodynamics both physically and across processors. I began as a theorist. A theory is an idea that's not positively true. A theory is not a fact. According to an earlier fluid dynamics theory, the weight and shape of the bumblebee and their relations to the wingspan of the bumblebee should make it impossible for the bumblebee to fly. However, the bumblebee is not a mathematician, nor does it understand the laws of physics, and therefore, in its ignorance, it defies our physics theories and did so by flying. Often, the facts prove our theories to be wrong. It's a fact that my world's fastest computing was recorded across a new internet that was a global network of the slowest processors in the world. It made the new set lines when I made that fastest computing discovery back on the 4th of July, 1989. My discovery of the fastest computing across the slowest processors proved earlier textbook theories wrong. In 1986 and 87, I was an engineering physicist who helped operate nine hydro hydroelectric dams. Those nine dams were built by the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation that was the number one dam builder in the world. As an engineering physicist employed by the U.S. government, I possessed the hydrological knowledge that must be used to protect the residents who lived on the floodplains of the 716-mile-long North Platte River. That river flows through Colorado, Wyoming, and Nebraska and has an average discharge of 1,355 cubic feet per second. The nine North Platte River dams within Wyoming that I operated were small compared to the Kainji Dam of the 4,180 kilometer long River Niger. The, river, the Niger has a discharge of, of 197,000 400 cubic feet per second. In the late 1970s, 
I researched how to use computational hydrodynamics and use it to forecast the motion of flood waves that will arise if the spillway of a dam breaches or if a dam breaks. Such mathematical calculations from solving an initial boundary value problem of computational hydrodynamics must produce the flood inundation maps for the North Platte River floodplains. As an engineering physicist, I explained the standard operating procedures to dam tenders. I instructed dam tenders on when to lower water levels along the North Platte River of Wyoming. Unlike other supercomputer scientists who were trained only in computer architecture, I knew hydrodynamics from both the fluid dynamics textbooks and field experiences that I gained along the reservoirs of the nine dams of the North Platte River. Back in 1969, I knew hydrodynamics from swimming far downstream of the Kainji Dam that holds a reservoir of 500 square miles of water and holds it upstream of the River Niger at Ndoni Biafra, Nigeria. The River Niger, called Orimili, is the principal river of West Africa. Orimili, the Igbo translation to the Great Water, is 2,600 miles long. It's the third longest river in Africa. My multidisciplinary experiences range from 1969 at the Biafran Navy Marine Base that was at the Oguta War Front on the east bank of Oguta Lake to the frontier of supercomputing that was in Silicon Valley in 1989. Those were the experiences that enabled me to conduct my supercomputing research and do so as a long, lone wolf. To conduct research alone and to simultaneously do so at the frontier of physics, at the frontier of mathematics, and at the frontier of computer science is the definition of a polymath and a true supercomputer scientist. Looking back retrospectively, computational fluid dynamics has a two and a half century history. The two centuries between 1740 and 1940 were the era of analytical fluid dynamics. During that era, partial differential equations that govern the motions of fluids, such as Euler's equations, only lived in obscure academic journal papers or on the mathematician's blackboard. Such equations were never discretized and coded for the black motherboard or for the evening weather forecaster. For the 15 years following June 20, 1974, at 1800 Southwest Campus Way, Corvallis, Oregon, USA, I grew from being one of the time-sharing programmers of one of the world's fastest computer that was powered by only one central processing unit to prevailing as the only full-time programmer 
of 16 of the world's state-of-the-art supercomputers that was each powered by up to 64 binary thousand central processing units. I theorized the world's fastest computer as powered by an internet that's a global network of up to 1 billion processors. That was how I was a quote-unquote discovered as the only father of the internet that invented an internet back in 1974. Mathematics is taught to every student. It's a mandatory subject during the first 12 years of schooling. But the mathematics learned in school was developed one to 5,000 years ago. The world's fastest computing as it's known today and as it's expected to be known tomorrow is a new mathematical knowledge that came of age on July 4, 1989, the date I discovered it. Parallel supercomputing is my contribution to mathematics. Supercomputing is the invention and milestone that changed the way the modern mathematician solves his or her most compute-intensive problems. In school essays, an often asked question is this. What are the contributions of Philip M. Aguale to physics? Please allow me to quote myself from a lecture that I gave to research physicists back in the early 1980s. The governing partial differential equations of gas dynamics were invented from the laws of conservation of mass, momentum, and energy. The number of partial differential equations is less than the number of dependent variables in the equations. To complete the system of equations, demanded we introduce an equation of state, like the ideal gas law that introduces temperature as a new dependent variable. Doing so requires we introduce another equation of state. Substantial progress in developing partial differential equations was made during the hotbed of research activities that occurred during the 75 years that were inclusive of 1840 through 1915. That was the period the Niger-Stokes equations and analogous partial differential equations that govern the motions of fluids were formulated during those 75 years, the practicing engineer only used algebraic and differential equations for his fluid dynamics calculations and often used equation and, and often used equation was the Bernoulli equation that's a nonlinear differential equation of the first order. During those years, the abstract governing partial differential equations 
of analytical fluid dynamics remain as textbook abstractions. Without the programmable computer that came into existence from 1946 onward, there will be no computational fluid dynamics and no weather forecast. And the analytical fluid dynamics of the pre-computer era will remain in the realm of pure mathematics that remains of interest only to mathematicians and physicists that we are within academia. Retrospectively, we had 200 years from 1740 to 1940 of analytical fluid dynamics. The experimental fluid dynamics that was extensively investigated by Leonardo da Vinci in the late 15th century was followed by the analytical fluid dynamics of 1740 through 1940, and then followed by the computational fluid dynamics of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and finally followed by the extreme-scale, massively parallel-processed fluid dynamics that was in the news because I discovered it when I executed it across an ensemble of 65,536 coupled processors back on July 4, 1989, in Los Alamos, New Mexico, USA. Because this system of partial differential equations was beyond the frontier of calculus and encoded the second law of motion of physics, it's used to predict the flows of crude oil, natural gas, and ejected water flowing across a highly anisotropic and heterogeneous producing oil field. The system of coupled and nonlinear partial differential equations, which governs an initial boundary value problem at the frontier of calculus and computational fluid dynamics that represents the Earth is the tool used to predict the long-term planetary motions of air and water. Such planetary motions are the essences of climate models. We can predict atmospheric and oceanic oceans motions and do so with the accuracy the second law of motion is used to predict the future positions of the moon and sun. The nine Philip Emma-Aguali equations are as reliable as a hammer. My contribution to mathematics is this. I extended the borders of mathematical knowledge by a distance of 36 partial derivatives of calculus. The partial derivatives of calculus measure changes in properties such as velocities, pressure, and friction. The computed solutions to a system of nonlinear partial differential equations that governs an initial boundary value problem called petroleum reservoir simulation correspond to the flow of crude oil, 
natural gas, and injected water that flow up to 7.7 .7 miles or 12.4 kilometers deep. The depth of an oil well is up to eight times the length of the second Niger Bridge of Nigeria. An oil field is about the size of Onitsha, Nigeria. A question in school essays of famous mathematicians and their contributions to mathematics is this. What are the uses of the Philip Emma Aguale equations? Each time you ride in a car, you did so because the new knowledge that I discovered on the 4th of July 1989 was used to pinpoint the locations of crude oil and natural gas. I was the first person to discover how the petroleum industry could use billions of processors to solve a system of trillions of equations of algebra. Such algebraic equations arise during the computations of the miles-deep subterranean flows of crude oil and natural gas. Such large-scale algebraic problems can only be solved across the millions of processors that power the world's most powerful supercomputers. State-of-the-art supercomputers are used to discover and recover crude oil and natural gas that were buried up to 7.7 .7 miles or 12.4 kilometers deep. Without the supercomputer, such crude oil and natural gas will remain undiscoverable and unrecoverable. As an analogy, the supercomputer is to the geologist or meteorologist or physicist or mathematician what the telescope is to the astronomer. Just as the world's biggest telescopes are used to locate distant stars, the world's fastest computers must be used to pinpoint the locations of crude oil and natural gas that are deposited up to 7.7 .7 miles deep. I used the word algebra a thousand times in the 1,000 lectures that I posted as podcasts on YouTube and on YouTube. The reason was that I discovered how to solve a system of equations of linear algebra. I also discovered how to solve those equations across a new global network of up to 1 billion processes. I visualized my network as my new internet. When I was coming of age, as a supercomputer scientist, and in the 1970s and 80s, the first world's fastest computing across the world's slowest processors was an unconfirmed theory. Before my discovery of the world's fastest computing, which occurred on July 4, 1989, how to solve the most compute-intensive problems wasn't known, wasn't taught, 
and wasn't in any mathematics or physics or computer science textbook and examination. Before my discovery, the fastest computing across the slowest processes only existed in the realm of science fiction, making that science fiction to become non-fiction felt like a benediction when I and my discovery were validated in 1989 with the highest award in supercomputing. It made the news headlines because I was unknown and won that award alone. Thank you. Insightful and brilliant lecture.